And while we have a through line that states authorial intent means dick. Right. I don't want to have to have the same haircut you have, Dad. Sorry, forgive me. Harriet motherfucking tub. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be crawling to something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. JK. Crawling. Uh, uh, so was was this before or after the poster and you vomiting all over the couch? <laughs> For those of you that can't see, Ed's eyes just crossed. That is fucked up. (laughs) But it's not wrong. teacher here in Northern California, and um, just in the last 48 hours, I'm going to say 48, um, I, I, have, I have had the opportunity to be very happy about um, the, the way that I am raising my son in the faith, mm. and when I say the faith, I, I don't mean my Catholicism, uh, because I'm doing okay there, but um, what what I am apparently doing a really good job of is uh, raising him as a geek because um, <laughs> uh, last night, not not earlier this evening, but but last night. So actually, it's not 48 hours; it's 24. But anyway, um, I I was having a conversation with him, and I don't even remember how it got started, but we were talking about superheroes and and powers and uh the conversation somehow came around to me explaining to him that green lantern is an example of a superhero who who creates things with his imagination and his courage and his willpower and if he and if he thinks real hard about something or he, he if he visualizes something you know uh confidently enough he can he can use his magic ring to create that to make it appear here, and so he can create a vehicle if he needs one, or he can create a big shield if he needs to defend himself, or he can make a giant hammer, whatever he needs. And um, I told that to my son, and then uh, this evening, uh, my mother, his Gigi, called. And um, he was talking to Gigi and he was showing her a couple of things that were new in his room. And I overheard him, apropos of nothing, saying, hey, Gigi, you want to hear something cool? Green Lantern can make anything he needs using his magic ring. I was like, oh, my son, you remembered. I got Oliver Klempt. It was the thing. So um, I'm pretty pleased with that. 
Um, and by the way, that's about the only time you're going to hear me talking. Well, okay. It's, that's, that's one of the, one of the, one of a few occasions on which, uh, you're, you're going to hear me going into any kind of lore with my son about anything DC related. Um, cause otherwise we're, we're an Orthodox Marvel house, but, um, you know, uh, and, and Spidey is his favorite character right now. He, he is a Spider-Man guy. Um, he also likes ghost spider and spin spin of course is the Disney nickname for, um, miles Morales, uh, because of Spidey and his amazing friends. I don't, I don't know if, if you Damien are familiar Mm -hmm. entirely with that particular series, but to explain for anybody who isn't. And so, yeah, he's, he's Spidey verse. Like that's, that's a thing. Um, and I'm I'm hoping over the years I'll be able to coax him into understanding that Captain America is the is the exemplar that that he needs to be reaching for. But you know, Spidey's pretty good, and and if that's as far as we get, at least it's not Iron Man. So you know, there we go. Yeah. Um, how about you? What do you got going on? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a Latin and high school U.S. history teacher up here in Northern California. Um, and uh, I actually, this, this update will be just about me mostly. Uh, as you know, you got me into uh, playing the Woodrow. Yes. Uh, and so I then, by providence, I think that's the right word. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, I went to the capital of Rhode Island. Is that how it's pronounced? Okay. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but yeah. by providence, I I ended up um, dating a gal who was a musician and a music teacher. Yeah. And one of the things that we like to do is play music together. Very cool. So she brought her banjo lele over. Uh, she uses that oh, to teach the okay. kids. Okay. Um, and I was playing on my Woodrow, the one that I got. That basically, you play the melody and I'll play the chords. Yeah. And we've yet to do so. Yeah. Um, and then uh, last night we spent about an hour with her teaching me how to play dead skunk in the middle of the road. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I've got, uh, you know, the strumming pattern down. I've got the chords. The chords aren't really that big of a problem. It was pretty mm. simple. Um, and then we decided to change the key for it because uh, I can't hit an F. I can hit an F minor. Okay. Uh, or an F sharp. I'm sorry. And then I was um, going to say dead skunk in a minor key. I yeah. have to listen to that. <laughs> like, wait, but, holy crap. But yeah. Uh, and so now dead I can, I can do that. And then in the middle of the road. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry. So yeah, uh, I can, I can now play that song, uh, which is awesome. Cause I can also play wagon wheel. Um, okay. Yeah. Play, yeah, uh, yeah. I can do yeah. the backup uh, chords yeah. for several songs that uh, yeah. you and I both enjoyed. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm happy about that. And um, and now you mentioned Wagon Wheel, and because my wife is a country music fan, I now have lyrics to that running in the back of my head. Oh, good. Damn. So okay. uh, have me over, and we will play those songs for her, and <laughs> there then we go. play the uh, Samurai game that I got you. Hey, yeah, so, there you go. Perfect. Okay. So, like all right. Well, when last we left, um, L. Frank yes. Baum was either a certified genius or an authentic wacko. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, although I, no, I'm, I'm, you know what? Neither. I yeah. don't think he was a wacko at all. No. And I was just quoting the Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. But yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. Twit. Mm-hmm. I, I keep, I keep coming back around to, 
Yeah. Yeah. Cinnamon roll upper class twit. Yeah. So, so, okay. Um, so yeah, he's writing, uh, I think he ends up writing, uh, what did I say? 14, 14, books, uh, based in you know, Oz. And it's, yeah. and it's funny. I vividly remember mm-hmm. as a kid, um, I, I got, I think my grandparents, I think my father's parents mm-hmm. for Christmas gave me, I don't even know what edition it was, but it, it had, it was a, it was a reprinting of one of the early editions that had vintage illustrations. Right. With all the original artwork, it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it, it was not, it was not, you know, an antique book by any stretch, um, right. but it was a reprinting of an old edition. Sure. And um, it included wonderful wizard of Oz and the land of oz okay which was the immediate sequel right which involved tip and i'm forgetting the witch's name but anyway hmm glinda no 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 evil witch evil witch Oh, um, uh, yeah, I and it's and it's something that sounded like Mowgli, but it wasn't wasn't that right. because that's obviously that's that's uh, and now I'm blanking, but yeah, that's Jungle Book. Okay. Um, oh, I and see. I want yeah. to say Dickens, but I, I know I'm wrong. Um, that's going to so, drive me crazy for the rest of the night. But anyway, yeah. Um, so they bought and, you those, and, yeah. And I remember uh, being uh, very very invested like incredibly invested in <laughs> uh dorothy's story and then being really pissed off and not liking tip very much and for like, our listeners tip is the protagonist of the second book okay uh who who at the opening of the story is um essentially a slave although i don't think the word slave is used he's he's right. he's the prisoner of uh, the evil witch. And I, he, he always struck me as being kind of mean spirited and kind of, kind of, I, I didn't like him. I, I, okay. I never got around to liking him even through, like through the whole story. I, I always thought he was a jerk. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so that was, yeah. Um, and I don't know where I was originally going with that, but yeah. So we've, we've talked about the book. Mm-hmm. And I know you were you were saying that we were going to now get into the movies. Yeah, and I'm only going to get into a few of them because there were way too goddamn many for me to really be interested in telling you this clone version or this clone version in the early studio system uh, for making movies when they would churn out 40 in a week. And since okay. he's got 14 books and since he's written a play and since and since and since, uh, you know, it's it's too many so i'm just going to stick to a few uh so the movie that we all know and love is obviously not the first movie of that name um in 1925 chadwick pictures went bankrupt producing the first version of the film now it's 1925 so it's a silent film one of l frank Baum's sons was actually a scriptwriter for it okay uh larry simon s-e-m-o-n i hesitate to call him larry seaman but it could be larry seaman uh, okay. He directed it, and he also starred as the Scarecrow. Uh, Oliver Hardy played the Tin Woodsman. Oh, okay. and in a remarkable, uh, remarkable instance of typecasting, Dorothy was played by a woman named Dorothy Dwan. 
So just, okay, yeah. well, there you go. Now she was 19 at the time of filming, uh, and was married to Larry Seaman until he died in 1928. Uh, the plot uh, for this movie wildly different than the play or the book, uh, and it's remarkably convoluted for being a silent picture. Uh, and uh, I grabbed a quote uh, describing what happened. Uh, a toy maker tells a bizarre story to his granddaughter about how the land of Oz was ruled by Prince Kind, um, uh, but he was overthrown by Prime Minister Cruel. Okay. Oh, kind and cruel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dorothy learns from Aunt M that fat, cruel Uncle Henry is not really her uncle via a note due to her uh on an 18 on her birthday her 18th birthday and instead it identifies her as princess dorothea of oz of course this means that dorothy is married to prince kind but then there's a tornado in which dorothy shitty and fat uncle henry as well as two farmhands are born to oz snowball the black farmhand because of course it's going to be racist it's a movie in 1925 uh, soon joins them after a lightning bolt chases him into the sky because it's fantasy and he's black. So, of course, lightning uh, and all the farmhands try to avoid capture. Prime Minister Cruel blames the farmhands for kidnapping her and orders the wizard to transform them into monkeys, which uh, which they cannot do. Um, or which the wizard cannot do. They flee. They're chased by the guards and by seamen. Um, or oh, I'm sorry, and Seaman uh, playing a farmhand then turns into a scarecrow. Hardy dons the Tin Woodsman disguise, like you do, uh, mm-hmm. and they're still eventually captured by the soldiers and end up on trial. Now here, the Tin Man, or Hardy, uh, accuses his fellow farmhands of kidnapping Dorothy. Prince Kynes then has the scarecrow and Snowball put into a dungeon. Cruel likes the cut of the Tin Man's jib and declares that the Tin Man is now the Knight of the Garter and Uncle Henry, the Prince of Wales, but with an H. Ambassador Wicked, uh, who is supported by Lady Vicious, uh, says that, of course, Cruel should should marry Dorothy. Then the wizard gives Snowball a lion suit, which he then uses to scare the Pumperdink guards like you do. Scarecrow manages to reach Dorothy to warn her against Cruel, but the Tin Man chases him back down into the dungeon and into a lion cage with real lions. Scarecrow and Snowball finally escape. When Prince Kind finds Prime Minister Cruel trying to force Dorothy to marry him, they have a sword fight. Prime Minister Cruel's loyal henchmen disarm Prince Kind, but then the Scarecrow saves Dorothy and Kind. Defeated by this escape, Prime Minister Cruel begs off, claiming and pleading that he took Dorothy to Kansas to protect her from the court factions of politics. But she orders that he be taken away anyway. The Scarecrow now sees that Dorothy has fallen for the prince that she was supposed to marry, and he is now crushed. So he flees up a tower from the Tim Man, who tries to blast him with a cannon. Uh, Snowball, no longer a lion, flies a biplane, which is also a triplane in some scenes, uh, overhead. And the Scarecrow manages to grab a rope ladder dangling underneath it. Sadly, the ladder breaks, and he falls. And at this moment, the grandpa's little granddaughter wakes up, and leaves. The grandfather finishes the story from the book that Dorothy marries Prince Kind and they live happily ever after. There, there was a whole plot line there. Um, and that's like they didn't most do of it with dialogue. Can, that's, like, that's, that's most of what I can say about that. Yeah. Is, wow. Um, and one of Baum's sons 
was a script writer. Uh huh. You know what that puts me in mind of? Mm. Uh, do you remember when we talked about Dune? Yes. And the fact that Frank Herbert's son cooperated with Kevin Anderson in writing a bunch of prequels and sequels yes. to the Dune series? Yes. They are fucking his corpse. <laughs> yeah, well, sand has like, a way of preserving things. Like, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. Okay. There's like, 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 like Baum Jr. needed cash. Maybe the the trope is money, dear boy. I'm just right. saying, like, wow. Well, I I don't know if I can convict him because this wasn't actually the first adaptation to the screen either. Turns out in 1914, His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz was actually produced by L. Frank Baum. Okay, well, canonically, mm-hmm. after the wizard leaves, mm-hmm. uh, His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz, he does wind up taking over because now he True. has the bran and pins in his head, which is brains. Right. In in what even now I have to admit is a pretty clever, you know, yeah. play on words. Like, bran and pins. You yeah. know, brains. You know, hey. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I mean, that's at least can, from the title there. It's at least canonical. But yeah, I mean, it's from it's taken straight from the ninth book, The Scarecrow of Oz. Yeah, Um, it opened in late September 1914 and it did okay, okay, which I can kind of understand why it would only do okay in late September of 1914. Um, Then they renamed it and they re-released it as The New Wizard of Oz in 1915 and it did a bit better. Uh, The plot's also totally different. And like I said, it's based on the ninth book. Uh, I'm not even going to try to wrangle this shit for you because it's not even the earliest Oz movie. The earliest was a pair of shorts that I found in 1910. Jesus fuck. Um, then there was the <laughs> patchwork girl of Oz. Okay. Which came out before September of 1914, but I couldn't find uh, a, it, I just know that it came out before September, even okay. though there's nine months to choose from. I couldn't find the actual could, one. Couldn't find the actual one. Yeah. Okay. There's so many movies prior to the 1931, uh, but I'm just going to stick to the 39 one because you saw how painful that was. Yeah. So we've covered allegory, right? Yeah. Now we're on to prophecy. This movie. Okay. This movie. 39 movie. Yeah. Okay. Has been called cursed for years and years and years. And rightly so. If your name is Judy Garland. Well, I mean, the poor woman had, I mean. She was a girl. Okay, yes. I'm, I'm talking about later in her life. Oh, sure, sure. But, you know. It was the, awful. The poor girl, uh, you know, I mean, the, the filming experience of this movie was was bad. And then she mm-hmm. went on to have, as a as a grown woman, went on to have a rough go of it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it due to the abuses of the studio system upon her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not a good story. Um, This is why, you know, I get into arguments with people all the time about um, if it's worth it for art for people to actually suffer. And my answer is always no. We can always do with 90% of what we get in terms of quality if Mm -hmm. it means not hurting people. Yeah. And I'm a wrestling fan. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah but you're not but you're not a japanese wrestling fan it, true I, I was never big on ecw so 
Judy Garland was 16 years old at the time of filming and had, as most 16-year-old girls, been well on her way to developing into a woman's body. Given that Dorothy is supposed to be nubile, they taped down her breasts, put a rubber disc in her nose to change its shape, and put her in a binding body corset to hide her curves. Okay, wait, back up. Okay. Okay, so she's 16. Yep. She's, let's say, more than halfway through physical development mm-hmm. via puberty. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the binding of her chest, Uh huh. I can see. The, okay. the whatever, you know, hiding her curves, okay, yep. I can kind of see. A disc in her nose? Well, our noses do change through puberty. Uh, So they put this disc that basically flared out her nostrils and pushed her nose up a bit. I mean, you can see her nose and it's a button nose. Okay. You didn't naturally have a button nose. Okay. The attention to detail for this abuse is quite staggering. Wow. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Studio head Louis B. Mayer. You've heard of him? Yeah, I have. Um, He called her a fat little pig with pigtails. Because that's what adults do. What a prick. Oh, it gets that's the more benign thing he did. He then Jesus. restricted her to a diet of black coffee, soup, cigarettes, and diet pills. Uh, the cigarettes and diet pills were mandatory. He also regularly groped her and broke down crying when she finally told him to stop. And he said, quote, how can you say that to me, to me who loves you? It's about to get darker. What? Okay. I mean, I believe you, but yeah. God almighty. Yeah. It's, this is not a, this, this is not a fun story. Um, I found wow. a way to depress myself through this. <laughs> it's like, God damn okay. it. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Can, can we just, can we just pause for a moment to, sure. to, for me, for me to point out mm-hmm. that um, I, I look, I just looked up Judy Carland. Mm-hmm. Because I was trying to remember, because I know, I I know in broad strokes that the rest of her life after this film was kind of a kind of a horror show. Yes, but I don't remember the details. And so I looked her up, and she was born in 1922. Yes, she died in 69. Yes, yeah, she would. She was 47. Yeah, yeah. God almighty, this poor mm-hmm. woman. Okay. Anyway, and we crammed on. all the suffering into that, but hey, Sheep. you know. All right. She did have a four octave range. So yeah, well, okay. Well, you know, there now, you go. She was on a steady diet of uppers and downers that were given to her by the studio and administered by her own mother, wow. which would, you know, cause fits of hysteria uh, from time to time. Those fits, of course, led to the, the director, Victor Fleming, who was the fourth director of this film, by the way. Yeah. Slapping her in the face on one occasion. The male munchkins, not to be outdone, they were played by little people, right? Yeah. Um, who were men in their 40s. They would regularly put their hands up her dress and pinch her. They would proposition her and they'd make lewd comments about her breasts. This is what she worked with. I mean, I get that it was the late 30s, but what the fuck, man? Right. Right. Like, she's a 16-year-old. Well, okay. In the 30s, a 16-year-old. I mean, my grandparents got married, I think, in the 40s or 50s. And I think grandma was 16 or 15. 
like you did have that weird there was that weird time where a 22 year old could absolutely marry his 15 year old student after school was out that year like gross super hella gross like i'm okay being a presentist but it's but it's but it's it's yeah but on the one hand we're okay being presentists but we also have to recognize recognize the reality of what the attitude was at the time yes yeah like we can judge it but i mean chaplain married two 16 year olds not at once but you know he did yeah no yeah so yeah which which, by the way like and this this is this i feel gross saying this but it's like he married two 16 year olds so the first time he married a 16 year old that's fucking gross yes but the second time he married a 16 year old she claimed to be pregnant by him so he had to do the right thing i know mother (laughs) yeah yep so he was even older the second time Uh he was what is he doing well i think his fourth wife i think she was like 18 or 19 and he was in his 50s i don't quite remember una i think her name was i I forget the exact age yeah yeah. una 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 chaplain yeah oh my god yep yeah all right so garland later said of her experience working for the studio quote they had us working days and nights on end they'd give us pills to keep us on our feet long after we were exhausted then they'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills mickey sprawled out on one bed and me on another that's mickey rooney yeah then after rooney, four... rooney also had some experiences there as a child star yeah and uh yeah i'll finish this quote and i'll, I'll say a little okay, bit more about yeah. him then after four hours, they'd wake us up and give us the pet pills again so we could work 72 hours in a row. Half of the time, we were hanging from the ceiling, but it was a way of life for us. Now, if you asked him at different times of his life, um, he said that she got into the addictions herself and that she was over-exaggerating. And at the same time, if you look at interviews of him much later in life, he's clearly a victim of elder abuse. So... I think he's in many ways internalized the system that was breaking him down and therefore projecting and attacking Normalizing her. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't consider him to be a very reliable narrator. There's also, there's also yeah. some sexism. Yes. Going on there. Absolutely. You know, Cause standards being different for men. Yeah. Well, and he was kind of fixated on that kind of stuff too. Like if you uh, listen to the interview of him, when he's watching, there was a twilight zone episode that he was in about a jockey having one last, you know, hurrah. Yeah. And um, the, he gets, you know, he's, it's, it's uh, I, I've got it on DVD. So it's like, you get commentary Yeah. Um, and his commentary, he just starts spinning out into talking about pornography and how it's the ruination of society and but he doesn't call it porn uh, he says you know sexy movies and he gets he's like really bitter and just sounds like it's it's bad it's none of it's good um and these are people that were horribly, yeah horribly abused for for really good art um so garland wasn't the only one who suffered from onset production nightmares by the way uh mm-hmm. let's let's see the the tin woodsman wasn't originally played by jack haley Mm-hmm. Famously, Buddy Ebsen of later Beverly Hillbillies fame, mm-hmm. he was. And he actually wasn't even supposed to be the Tin Man. Um, Ebsen was supposed to be the Scarecrow. 
and Ray Bolger was going to be the Tin Man. But Ray Bolger said, well, since I'm a song and dance man, the Scarecrow is a better fit for me. So let me do that. And then Ebsen can be the uh, Tin Man. And it was a smart move considering what ends up happening to Ebsen. But uh, also Ray Bolger's childhood hero had been Fred Stone. Fred Stone was the guy who played Scarecrow on stage in 1902. Okay. So Bolger was Scarecrow, Buddy Ebsen uh, was uh, testing to be the Tin Man, and he had a major allergic reaction to the aluminum dust that they used to coat his face. Yes. Because in 1938 and th- 1939, they coated your face with aluminum dust. He complained, but because the studio system was something along the lines of polite galley slavery, he was ordered yeah. back to the set. Wow. Now, why he didn't just say, fuck you, no, I have no idea, but you know, I mean, I'm a teacher. I'm a part of a huge bureaucracy. There are times where I've probably been told to do dumb shit that I didn't say fuck you no to that I really should have. So, especially in the first two years of your career. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once back on set, medical personnel, which I was surprised to find that were actually on set, um, <laughs> they noticed what was happening, and they took him to the hospital. Um, and he had breathing problems for the rest of his life, by the way, because of this. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I think he was in there for like six weeks or some insane number. Oh, of yeah. Weeks. Yeah. A long period of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jack Haley then gets cast as the Tin Woodsman and they switch out dust for paste. See? Better. There you go. Solve the problem. It's still aluminum, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> which gives him a huge eye infection, which actually shuts down production for a while. And it's almost like the cruelty is the point because clearly they don't care about making their bottom line bigger because they had to shut down their production because they gave the guy a fucking eye infection, which they could have come up with something different. And Cecil B. DeMille called. <laughs> He's wondering why you haven't drowned people yet. He wants, he wants to know when, when, when you're actually going to start, like, you know, abandoning people and horses to die. <laughs> right. Like, you know. Can't have a good film without it being a snuff film. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Ray Bolger, uh, he also didn't escape unharmed uh, because of how active he had to be as the scarecrow and how wonderfully insulatory straw can be. He was always on the verge of fainting several times due to overheating. Um, and he had permanent scarring on his face because the glue that they used to keep the newly developed latex mask on his face uh, ripped basically basically gave him like a, a, a rash which then broke down his skin and he had scarring like you can look at pictures of ray bolger and you can see the tint the uh scarecrow scar wow yeah which is which actually kind of ties in with the lord of the rings films because um god damn it vigo mortensen no gimli um and i love the actor and it's driving me crazy tell um, the story anyway uh anyway uh he he had uh a terrible time with the prosthetics for uh his his uh for playing the role uh john mm-hmm. reese davies mm-hmm. um he had he had a terrible terrible time uh to the point that it's one of the stories that come off of the set is that his eyes were were swelling shut Oh, wow. Um, and so so it was a unique challenge for all of the stuntmen playing the orcs that he was going to fight was that he was fighting blind. 
Wow. In several cases. And, you know, and, and this was, this was not, uh, this was not, the situation was not helped by the fact that, of course, John Rice Davies is actually a fairly large guy. Right. Who, who, when he was fighting against the orcs was usually like literally fighting from his knees to get the shot right. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm trying to remember which one of the hobbits it was, it was, whether it was Mary or Pippin, but one of the actors in an interview said, and so John would, would look at the stuntman and go, all right, so I'm going to come at you and I'm going to hit you like this. And then I'm going to come over at you and I'm going to smack you like this. And then I'm going to go at you. And the stunt guys are like athletes. They'd be like, yeah, yeah okay, sure, John. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Fine. You know, ha, you know, and, and, and like metaphorically be like patting him on, on the head in their, mm-hmm, in their mm-hmm. own minds. And he'd come at him full bore, like, like <laughs> not, not pulling any punches. Well, you know, it's a rubber axe, so it's not going to kill anybody, but like he'd knock these guys on their asses. I was going to say that'll dent the shit out of your clavicle. <laughs> and, and, and so very quickly there was, okay, when John says he's going to hit you like that, that's how he's going to do it. Yeah. And, and you, you need to be prepared for the fact that he's swinging, 70 percent blind right you know and yeah well and, you know, and now now the now the difference is mm-hmm. that the production team was like oh shit john because this was now in the in the 90s early 2000s they're like right. oh oh shit you know we got to figure out some way to solve this and john was like no 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 this is this is what works and i don't want to be holding up the production and you know i'll take a break every three days and you know let the let the blisters heal or whatever it was jesus christ you know (laughs) and so but you know it's not just producers and managers who have this idea about suffering in art it's also actors yeah but they were brought up in a system i mean john rice davies has been in that system for a while so yeah but yeah and 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 there's there's a difference between, you know, the, the kind of thing he was doing and like, no, no, this is going to scar your lungs permanently, right. Mr. Ebsen. Yeah. And we're not yeah. telling you. And we're not, and we're not telling you. And like we don't give a shit. Right. Get back, get, you know, yeah. back to the front. Yeah. Uh, uh you know, uh Stan Hansen, uh wrestler, cowboy type, yeah. uh broke Bruno San Martino's neck. Um okay. yeah. Um he is famously blind, uh, or he was. Uh okay. and, could barely see and his move was the lariat which is basically a clothesline but done by a cowboy so it's called a lariat okay you had no That's idea where he, he broke was somebody's hit neck no no he he body slammed them onto their onto the back oh. of their neck yeah. oh okay um but uh he um he you you did not know where he was going to hit you um and he came at you full force because <laughs> he was blindish uh to the point where he and big van vader uh in japan so you know that i mean everybody well, loves stan hansen anyway because he hits really fucking hard but uh and so everybody's fine with it for the most part right well he and big van vader they get into it and uh stan and vader always works stiff too and so stan he comes to the bell to the to the ring with a rope and a cowbell so he takes the cowbell and he hits vader in the head with it shattered his orbit bone so that vader's eye popped out and was dangling and they kept going mother fucker oh when you look it up uh you don't look up the picture because i know you but when you look up the account vader talks about this gush of warm um and it just oh my god (laughs) like yeah 
So <laughs> that's all anybody needs to know about Japanese wrestling right there. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. We're done. Ugh. Like I could elaborate, but yeah. there's the point. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, the, the, I, I don't think we as a society mm-hmm. talk enough about just how abusive the studio system was. No, we don't. We always talk about the artistry and as though we talk about it in such a way that it makes it so that all that suffering led to this really great art and therefore it's okay. And that's again, why I get into those discussions where I'm like, no, no, I'm, Mm. I'm fine with being 90% of magnificent. If it means that like she didn't break her rib for that scene, you know, or, or whatever, which brings us by the way, to the cowardly lion played by Burt Lahr. Um, whose son had Jack Haley as Godfather. These guys stayed friends. Okay. Uh, The Cowardly Lion costume was actually, um, it was, how to put this? Um, It was two lion pelts for real that were stitched together. Because what? Yeah. And I don't know which lions it is, because I know that by 1939, MGM had already gone through two lions. And I'm not sure if it's them. I hope no. because at least you're. Yeah. By the way, one of those lions. There's some ate hardcore its trainer. Ne- yeah, there's some hardcore necromantic shit going on there. Yeah, but either like, way, wow, two actual lion pelts. So, because of course, of course, because, why? Because why would you? Thirty-nine. Yeah. Fucking of course. Like, come on. Yeah. It weighed sixty pounds. Okay, well, I mean, you know, if it's genuine lion pelts, I can right. see how it would. But it's a full body suit of 60 pounds. Like Tina Turner wore 70 pounds of chain mail for uh, Beyond Thunderdome. But yeah. you could take that shit off pretty quick, right? It's on a frame. Yeah. And she was badass as hell. Well, yeah, I mean. But also, you know, wind at, could go through it. That woman. She could do that. Yeah, but wind could go through it, too. <laughs> These are two yeah. lion pelts that are zipped all the way up. Uh, since it's made of real lion fur and lion skin, it's hot as fuck. Um, and add to that the studio lights being yeah. their Clean own lights. sons. Clean um, lights. Yeah. Yeah. And and Bert Lahr was also in danger of fainting on the regular. Also heat exhaustion. So and there's a few scenes where you look and he is just sweating. Gallons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Buckets. Um, so they turned the lights down for his sake. Um, but because the needs of Technicolor required the set to be so well lit that it was over a hundred degrees on set. And because of the prosthetics on his face, he wasn't able to eat solid foods when they were filming. So his lunch came through a straw. And after the first day of filming, he'd sweat so much into the lion skin that the studio brought in an industrial dryer so they wouldn't have to wait for it to dry out normally. So you got two people I, eating I liquid diets. I cannot, I, I, I cannot, I cannot put words mm-hmm. to just how fucking horrifying that is. So there's your four principles, right? The the one that okay, gets off the so lightest we're, so is the straw man. So so we're using paste instead of dust because you know 
like you almost kill the guy's lungs. Yeah. You know, because you, you got to breathe. But fuck your eye. But but fuck your eye. Yeah. Like, you know, whatever. Um, conjunctivitis, motherfucker, deal with it. Yeah. Um, and then and then we're going to we're going to ended up with some posture problems, too, because of the way he had to stand because the way he had to stand yeah. in the suit. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, so we're also going to fuck up your spinal column while we're at it. Right. Um, and then, and then, so, so, um, we're gonna, we're gonna then, uh, put a mask on this other guy that's, that's going to literally rip the flesh off of his face. Yes. And, and also, by the way, we're gonna, we're gonna heat him up to, you know, within, within, to, to human, human stew. And then, and then, uh, the lion isn't going to be human stew. He's going to be human fricassee. Yep. And mm-hmm. we're going to add to that by um, you, 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 everything's got to be, you, you're going to eat shakes for the whole time you're here, but mm-hmm. we're not even going to make them like ice cream shakes to cool you off. Cause you know, yeah. and then on top of that, <laughs> on top a, of that, the cherry the shit out of a 16 year old, the cherry on top of the, of the Sunday of moral suck mm-hmm. is we're going to, sexually harass and simultaneously humiliate mm-hmm. emotionally six, abuse emotionally psychologically abuse, abuse yeah a 16 year old girl who we're going to pump full of drugs yes like like at both extremes mm-hmm. no pills and stop pills mm-hmm. which by the way i'm taking those those terms from the u.s air force right which is notorious for similar things, although they don't do it to 16 year olds. Right. And it's kind of justifiable because that could keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, no. Right. No, you don't nobody, need nobody's to give, life is depending on this. Exactly. You don't need to give the child what you would give to a man to keep him from dying from a machine in a war. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. And, and yeah. And by the way, since she was since she was sixteen at the time, mm-hmm. wasn't there? Well, okay, this was nineteen thirty nine, so I don't know, but mm-hmm. I, I know I know modernly, there's there are practices regarding well, if you're working on a movie set, there's you know a certain amount of the time that like you're going to school on the movie set because you're sixteen years old and you're supposed to be you know in high school. Yeah, it didn't work that way back then. There were laws that were made I, later. I think they were made specifically because of the boy who played Alfalfa um, yeah. and the horrible way that he lived and died. And I think yeah. that came out in like after this. Yeah, um, I so, think you're right. So what happened was the studio essentially owned human being children um, and was kind of their guardian. But really, they they just sweetened the pot for these children's parents parents yeah and it's real easy to do so yeah wow. now okay. these these four did not have the most deadly uh things happening to them on 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 set uh or or even the most deadly costume the most deadly costume has to have been the wicked witch of the wests right right because okay. what color is her face green which means make copper Ka- ooh. And if you said highly flammable copper, you'd even be more right. Yeah. So she also has to drink her food through a straw on shooting days because of how toxic copper is when you eat it, apparently. Um, 
So I can just imagine Judy Garland, Burt Lahr, and Margaret Hamilton all standing around drinking what was just a normal meal for Judy Garland. Um, see, all this shit is why I will never tell you that art is totally worth the abuse. So anyway, Margaret Hamilton, the woman who plays the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. On a normal day, the copper-based paint was so toxic that it had to be cleaned off with alcohol. So already out of the gate, uh, out of the gate, really good for the skin, right? When the witch leaves Munchkinland, there is a cloud of flame and smoke, and a trap door helps her disappear behind those things. Take one, no problem. Okay, but Victor Fleming said, "You know what? Let's do it again. Let's make sure we get multiple shots so we can stitch it together." Right? So we got two really good takes. That's even better. Let's do it. Oh no! Well, oh, there was God, a miscue. No. Yeah. Uh, the crew set the fires too early and Hamilton didn't have a chance to get away and her hat, her coat and the broom caught fire. Well, this then burned her face and her hands, which were coated with green fuel. And this ended up, quote, scalding her chin, the bridge of her nose, her right cheek and the right side of her forehead. The eyelashes and eyebrow on her right eye had been burned off. Her upper lip and eyelid were badly burned. Oh, now, my God. You get the fire put out. She's all burned to shit. What do you need to use to take the makeup off again? Oh, no. Oh, John Ringo, no. (laughs) I can imagine the pain, but only barely. Um, When Hamilton looked down, her skin had been burned off of her hand. Her friend had to pick her up from the movie set and take her to the hospital And Hamilton even later said, quote, that was always amazing to me that the studio didn't send me home in a limousine. Um, Margaret Hamilton spent the next six weeks in the hospital. The studio called every uh, called the next day asking her when would she be back to work? Because, of course, they did. Are you? No, you're not fucking kidding me. I'm not not. And they pressured her to the point where she came back before she was fully healed because it's the movie studio and they're not happy unless someone is, everyone is sacrificing their lives for celluloid. The nerves, Jesus God, the nerves in her hand were still so exposed that in order to avoid putting green paint on burnt ass hands, she wore green gloves for the rest of the filming. And you can actually see it in a few scenes. What the fuck, man? She considered suing, but then she realized that meant she would never work in movies again, because that's fair. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Margaret Hamilton was the sole source of income for herself and her son, having divorced a year prior from her husband. And because of this, she refused to take part in the skywriting stunt. She was supposed to sit on a pipe that belched smoke behind it. So they paid a stunt double $35 to do that shot instead. The stunt double, named Betty Danko, had a problem with how it was rigged, seeing that it was in danger of catching fire since the fire was inside the pipe that would create the smoke. Still, the studio was paying her $35. uh, So Danko acquiesced and promptly caught fire herself on the third take after the pipe exploded, engulfing her in flames. Quote, I felt as though my scalp was coming off. Betty Danko later later recalled spending 11 days in the hospital. Quote, I guess that's because my hat, my hat and my black wig were torn loose. Danko never worked with fire again. 
And because they weren't done with the scene, the studio hired another stunt double to finish scene named Aline Goodwin. And Aline Goodwin never got the credit. Like I feel for Aline Goodwin not mm-hmm. getting credit because that's bullshit. She should yep. get credit. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I think she got off easy. Given like of all of the shit that, that was the complained about. Yeah. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. And and also, um, it's it's very sobering to to hear that that happened over $35. Yes. We're gonna pay you 35 bucks. Now, I know it's 1939, 35 bucks translates to a At couple least a down hundred payment bucks. on a house. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know in this market, but you know, uh, I do recall housing being like 600 bucks for a house sometime around then. Okay. Yeah. Or, yeah. It could be, but anyway, but, it's but still like, fucking you know, ridiculous. It, it's still, yeah. you know, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, what, you, what we're, what we're getting around to saying here is that the filming of the wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm could be turned into a horror movie in its own right. Could have been. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, costumes weren't the only danger, by the way. Uh, you remember the snow that fell on them to wake them up in the poppies? That was yeah. asbestos. Uh, so... <laughs> Well, it was 1939. Of course, it was asbestos. Yeah, I mean, nobody I, fucking knew. And, pretty sure people garnished hey, their sandwiches with asbestos yeah, back you know, then. And, so. and, also, and also, I'm going to point out... Mm-hmm going to point out that's the first thing you've mentioned so far that it's wasn't a goddamn retardant. fire hazard <laughs> yeah i know i thought the same thing i'm like oh it's a little too little too late but <laughs> <laughs> like where was all that asbestos when people were catching fucking fire right <laughs> like oh you need to keep it safe you know you want it to look like snow um Jesus. also the women were obviously paid less than the men uh ray bolger yeah. and jack haley both got three thousand dollars a week judy garland got five hundred um little people were lead character i know i know yeah yeah little people got paid less than half of what toto got (laughs) okay wait (laughs) toto got 120 dollars a week (laughs) the little people got less than half that i think they got like 40 bucks a week okay so that's the production the silver slippers get changed into ruby slippers because it shows up better in technicolor right yeah 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 when the movie came out it was moderately successful uh in 1956 mgm sold the tv rights to cbs for two hundred fifty thousand dollars per broadcast and it was really successful on tv getting more than half of the watching audience the night that it was broadcast on the ford star jubilee so successful that CBS ran it around Christmas time again in 1959, and this time it got almost 60% of the total viewing audience. And after that, it became an annual occurrence, embedding it into the American zeitgeist. Now, once VHS okay. and Betamax came out in 1980, yeah. it was available on those formats as well. And then, of course, Laserdisc and DVD and so on. And it's been a staple ever since. But what's especially fascinating to me is twofold. First, that The Wizard of Oz went from unintentional allegory to prophecy. Um, also unintentional. Uh, when the wizard is giving gifts to each of the characters, brains, heart, and guts, uh, he's really actually leading the way from the top to the bottom, uh, from you know the basically top of the head, bottom of the grundle. Um, before taking off his balloon, he predicts several things. First, the scarecrow's brain. 
he says, quote, anybody can have a brain. That's a very mediocre commodity. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they have they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got a diploma. He predicts the commodification of education in the early 2000s. Okay. In 1940, a year after this movie came out, the percentage for white people completing high school was around 30%. For everyone else, it was about 10%. And remember, by this point, even Mississippi had free public compulsory education. Yeah, yeah. For both groups, uh, whites and everyone else, the completion of college to the point of getting a college diploma was hovering around 5% with an enrollment of about 15%. So a third of the people who go to college come back, come out with a degree. Um, Everyone else is just about 1% and white males specifically are about 6% as far as college graduates, those who go uh to call those who go to college and come out with a degree it's about six percent of the population okay at that time the median income was 956 dollars for a man okay in 2010 the high school graduation rate was 86 percent of which about 68 percent were enrolled in college went on to college total college graduates is about 30 percent in 2010 and in 2010 the median income for a man is about thirty-three thousand dollars Okay. Now for the difference between the two, I had to do some math. So with a diploma in 1940, um, your salary was about $1,380 median. Okay. Adjusted for inflation uh, compared to uh, adjusted for inflation up to 2010 numbers. So I can compare apples. Yeah. $21,494. So that's with a diploma. With a bachelor's degree in 1940, you were making $2,240. Uh, adjusted for inflation in 2010 dollars, that's $34,888. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, if you have a diploma in 2010, your median income is about $36,600. Okay. With a bachelor's degree in 2010, it's $52,000. Okay. Okay. In 1940, if you only had a diploma that still made you only 30% of the population and you'd earn about 41% of what someone with a bachelor's degree would earn. In 2010, if you only had a diploma, that makes you about 86% of the population. So much, much greater chunk. And Mm -hmm. you'd earn about 70% of what someone with a bachelor's degree would earn. So you're catching up, right? Yeah. And before we laud this as a positive catching up development, the consumer price index in 1940 was 14. And in 2010, it was 218.1. Yeah. But we get into earning potential and suddenly it's fucked. Uh, The average dollars purchasing power in 1940 was 15 times what it is today. So that compression doesn't actually mean that a diploma is catching up to a bachelor's. It means that a bachelor's is falling further behind. And part of that is due to the commodification of higher education. Because we could uh, look at college tuition. Now, if we only take a look at college tuition in 1940, it's a bit of a misdirect because many colleges were free. Let's look at CSU Sacramento and UC Berkeley. In 1940, CSU Sacramento did not exist. Yeah. It starts in 1947. So I have to use 1947 numbers. Now, in 1947, tuition for an entire year at CSU Sacramento was $13. 
and there was an additional student fee of $11. So a total of $2 a month or $24 a year. So okay. if you enrolled in 1947 and you went through 1951 and you got a four-year bachelor's degree, you would have spent $96, which is the equivalent to $806 in 2010 for an entire four years. Yep. Now, the best price I could find, the best thing I could find, and I looked for a long time, uh, in 1940 uh, for UC Berkeley was $25 worth of incidental fees and tuition was free. I'm going to say it again. Tuition to UC Berkeley was free. Now, if you were out of state, it was $75 a year, plus the incidental fees, which means that out of state folks paid $100 per year for a UC Berkeley education. Okay. So if you went from 40 to 44 and you were an out-of-state person, you would pay $400 over four years, which in 2010 dollars is $4,959. All right. The California resident, because shit's free, would pay a total of $100 over four years or in 2010 dollars, $1,239. Now, tuition okay. in 2010 at CSU Sacramento was $4,400, which in 2011 increased to $5,472. Just apparently that was a watershed year. Uh, and then it held steady through 2018. So just for tuition alone, by the way, this is not for parking, not for housing, not for food, not for books, no student fees, just tuition alone for four years which in itself is fucking stupid because only 47% of CSU students graduate in four years. Yeah. But if we're going to compare apples to apples, yeah. get a four-year degree at CSU Sacramento in 2010 through 2014, you're going to pay $20,816 for four years. At UC Berkeley, tuition in 2010 was $8,353 for in-state and $31,022 for out-of-state. And I had no idea it was that cheap. Motherfucker. Yeah. Okay. Out-of-state was, that's per year? 31000 a year. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, it's going to increase uh, annually. So assuming that you can get a four-year degree and only ever pay tuition, which is impossible. Yeah. And only 64% of UC Berkeley students can actually get a four-year degree. And I do find it interesting that more UC students can get the four-year degree than the CSU students. And that speaks well, to there's, there's a whole there's a whole lot of factors involved yeah. in that, including financial background, exactly how many of them need to be working and going to school mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many factors, but yeah. yeah. But to keep apples comparing to apples, in-state UC four-year bachelor's tuition, just tuition for four years, $40,195 for a four-year degree. Out-of-state tuition, $131,499. And the way that's being financed for, mm -hmm. I don't, I, a majority of students mm -hmm. is, is by taking out loans. Right. Which then, you know, saddle them with debt for yeah, however many years. Yeah, I don't want to date this podcast, but I literally this month just finished paying off my student loans. 
I got my master's degree in 2006. Yeah. I had been going since 1999. Jesus. So the wizard hit it on the head and with no more brains than you have, but they have one thing you haven't got a diploma. Now, how does the scarecrow respond to not having to spend any money at all on this diploma, which will make a difference of 41% in his salary uh, and times 15%. Uh, he says, how can I ever thank you enough? Well, the wizard knowing the future, knowing what the consumer price index will be in the 21st century says quite plainly, well, you can't. <laughs> so then he goes to the cowardly lion, which always kind of bugged me because it was out of order, but whatever. He gives him a lot. He gives the lion a medal. He says, back where I come from, we have men that we call heroes. Once a year, they take their fortitude out of, uh, they take their fortitude out of mothballs and parade it down the main street of the city highway or uh, the main street of the city, I apologize. And they have no more courage than you have, but they have one thing you haven't got, a medal. So I searched and I searched and I couldn't find any actual aggregated data about how many police every year get a medal. Uh, it's as easy to find as uh, how many police shootings there are, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. Now that said, in 1962, John F. Kennedy said that May 15th shall be National Peace Officer Memorial Day with the week surrounding that being National Police Week. Now, that's been 60 years, and a quick search shows us that there's over 900,000 police officers in the United States. They're spread over 17,985 police agencies, if you count the city, county, state, and federal agencies. The wizard predicted the support and fetishization of the thin blue line by his speech and subsequent awarding the line of metal for, among other things, conspicuous bravery against wicked witches. The one he went and helped kill in her own home without a warrant, without any due process, and at the behest of the leader of another city. I'm going to quibble here. Sure. Like, I totally get where you're going with that. And mm -hmm. that is one interpretation. I'm going to counter mm -hmm. that, again, the lion is not the, uh, is not law enforcement. The lion is imperialism, I, or or the military in an imperialist state. Have you seen pictures of Ferguson? Because you're showing me the same picture. Was, okay, yes, but <laughs> have you seen the parades uh, when when an officer has fallen? Uh, which again, okay. that is a fucking yeah. tragedy, and that is awful. But have you yeah. seen the parades where they march yeah. down the street? Um, the, okay. the thick right. ass blue lines. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with you that all the things you said are also true. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to co-opt it. I'm going to do armed, that. Thing I, so, so, yeah. so rather than, rather than limit it to either one, the fetishization of armed agents of authority. Yes. Whether, whether military or, or law enforcement. Yeah, I'll go with that. And in okay. 1900 soldiers were far more ubiquitous um, as, as a visible force than were yeah. beat cops. So, yeah. Uh, but in 1939, I think it's switching, quite yeah, honestly, because okay. you, yeah, you had time. cars. So you had just yeah. traffic cops alone, you know? Yeah. And finally, and most insidiously, he comes to the Tin Man. The wizard's prescience knows no bounds in talking to his galvanized friend. He says, quote, back where I come from, there are men who do nothing all day but good deeds, and their hearts are no bigger than yours. But they have one thing that you haven't got, a testimonial. And remember, my sentimental friend, that a heart is not judged by how much you love how much you are loved by others. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Uh, My girlfriend and I were watching this with my kids and we both looked at each other. We're like, what the fuck is this? Um, That is some codependent ass shit right there. That is, that is anti-Christian. Oh yeah, that too. Like, (laughs) and it's prophetic as hell. Um, In 1939, he called out a significant tentpole of our culture and he gives him a heart as a small token of esteem. The wizard clicks like and tells him that it's about how many yeah. likes he can get. I'm going to paraphrase a couple articles here that talk about social media. The first one is a Mayo Clinic analysis of the impact on kids. Quote, social media allows teens to create online identities, communicate with others and build social networks. These networks can provide teens with valuable support, especially helping those who experience exclusion or have disabilities or chronic illnesses. Teens also use social media for entertainment and self-expression, and the platforms can expose teens to current events, allow them to interact across geographic barriers, and teach them about the variety of subjects, including healthy behaviors. Social media that's humorous or distracting or provides a meaningful connection to peers and a wide social network might even help teens avoid depression. However, social media can also can use also negatively a uh, Social media use can also negatively affect teens, distracting them, disrupting their sleep, and exposing them to bullying, rumor spreading, unrealistic views of other people's lives, and peer pressure. The risks might be related to how much social media teens use. A 2019 study of more than 6,500 12 to 15 year olds in the United States found that those who spent more than three hours a day using social media might be at heightened risk for mental health problems. Another 2019 study of more than 12,000 13 to 16 year olds in England found that using social media more than three times a day predicted poor mental health of and well-being. Other studies have observed links between high levels of social media use and depression or anxiety symptoms. A 2016 study of more than 450, te- 450 teens found that greater social media use, nighttime social media use, and emotional investment in social media, such as feeling upset when prevented from logging on, were each linked with worse sleep quality and higher levels of anxiety and depression. How teens use social media also might determine its impact. And a 2015 study found that social comparisons and feedback seeking by teens using social media and cell phones was linked with depressive symptoms. In addition, a small 2013 study found that older adolescents who use social media passively, such as by viewing others' photos, reported declines in life satisfaction. Those who use social media to interact with others or post their own content didn't experience these declines. So that's the Mayo Clinic. Uh, the, okay. second, the second one here is from an author named Venus Roots, who is writing for Medium on the connective tissue between the culture, between the light culture and capitalism. They say, quote, even for social media users, artists and thinkers looking to deviate and produce disruptive content, we must grapple with the reality that even vulnerability, rehashing of trauma and radical political analyses are encouraged by this commodification process and are all forms of currency within capitalism. This framework has used the media to explicitly dictate that profitability and proximity to profit is a measure of success in our society. In the current system, 71% of businesses exist on Instagram. We've had discussions about whether or not you put this podcast on Insta and Facebook. Um, And it's not like we've actually figured out how to make money off of your brilliance and my hilarity, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I do this for the love of it, but uh, I absolutely have caught myself trying to justify it to people because of like, oh, well, what's it about? It's Oh, it's about this. You know, someday we're going to turn this into money. Oh, and then mm-hmm. it's okay. Like, 
that whole connection yeah. between the amount of exposure and, and whatnot. So, well, okay. The commodification, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, not quibble, but I, I think, I think the commodification aspect of both social media and, mm-hmm. and any kind of content that we're creating and, and commodification of popularity in, in the mm-hmm. sense of, mm-hmm. you know, how, how much, how much you are loved by others. Sure. To, to paraphrase the wizard, mm-hmm. the commodification of that and the commodification of university education. Yep. Both, both come back around mm-hmm. to the ingrained uh, Protestant capitalist uh, idea of material success as an indicator of virtue. Mm-hmm. That, like, if you're making money at it, then it's okay because that shows that it's worthwhile. That it is right. meaningful. It is meaningful if you are if you are making money at it. It is meaningful because making money right. means you are gives it meaning supporting supporting your family. There, right. there is there is a tangible value associated with it, and and that tangible value is is measured in mm-hmm. profitability. Is is measured in capitalization. Right. Capitalization. And that all comes back to um, a very American. And and I think I think this is one of those things that unfortunately we've exported to the rest of the world. Uh, One of the aspects of our culture that's that's gone global that Mm -hmm. that is that is toxic is the uh, very Puritan idea. Yeah that um, the elect, you know, that there are certain people who are going to heaven, they're predestined. And everybody likes to talk about how, well, we don't know who the elect are, nobody, but God knows who's the elect. But we're all going sideways, we can kind of see that it's yeah, but we're, we're all we're all going to agree to not say out loud right <laughs> the part the part we're not going to say out loud is if you are prosperous then you must be one of the elect because that's a sign of god's favor right and that has been secularized in our mm-hmm. society into this idea that well if it's making money then it's worthwhile and if it's not making money then you've got to find some other way to justify it like you were talking about yeah oh yeah and like why get a university education well i'll tell you why to get a university why to get a university education you should get a university education because it'll give you the ability to think clearly and rationally and use logic and it'll it'll make you a more well-rounded person like there's so many spiritual and intellectual reasons to get a university education but Mm -hmm. the one that we harp on kids about the one that constantly comes up is Mm -hmm. as a commodity if you have this diploma you're going to make more money if you have this degree you can go into these fields Mm -hmm. and it it all becomes materialized and and you know the idea that you know, well, if you're not good at something, why are you doing it? Because if you're not good at it, you're not going to be able to make money at it. Right. Well, okay. Look, I, I am made deeply happy every year mm-hmm. when, when December 1st rolls or the day, well, not even December 1st, the day after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. 
I am made deeply happy by the fact that I can walk around my house singing God rest you merry gentlemen at the top of my lungs. <laughs> I am not a singer. Like I, mm-hmm. I have never taken voice lessons. I, I know that, that I, I am not by any objective measure, a good singer mm-hmm. quotes around good, but it makes me fucking happy. Yeah. Or so, I mean, like you and I both took up a musical instrument. Yeah. Now performing invariably uh, people are, well, are you any good? But no. And then the question is always, well, why do you do it? Well, cause I like it. But very often, if you take up an art, a performance art of some sort, I, I say this as a comic. Yeah. Um, it is in, intrinsically tied. Your success is intrinsically tied to your ability to make money at it. Yeah. And I don't ever intend to make money at music. I absolutely, uh, and I think you as well, we both wanted to make money at this podcast. And still hold out some weird ass hope that it, it will someday. Like vague, <laughs> but neither know, of us is doing anything about that. Yeah, no, yeah, no, um, but work. But there we go. It, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, like I said, we've talked about putting this on Instagram and on Facebook so that yeah. people we have get a bigger audience. Exactly. Or... You know, yeah. and and that's not just for the art of it. That's not just because hey, we have important shit to say. That's because we're hoping that it catches somewhere and we can actually make money at it. Yeah. And I would love to make money doing this. I absolutely would. That'd be great. But like, we're absolutely, Christmas. we're ob- absolutely falling into it. But like, you know, yeah. when I talk about, you know, my, my pun show all the time, yeah. but I always say it pays for Christmas every year. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know it's successful. And I don't need it to be any more than that. Um, but if it's less than that, I'm going to start questioning it. Yep. And yet, you know, for the last uh, year, you know, it hasn't done that. Or for the last two years, it hasn't done that because of COVID. And so I've had to like really re- reevaluate, is this worth doing? And sure enough, it is because, you know, I'm doing it when it's live. But again, I'm always checking that bottom line. I'm always mm-hmm. uh, PT Barnuming it. Yeah. So, uh, but she, uh, they go on. They say, we compartmentalize our real life experiences in relation to content likability, meaning how liked will this be by my followers? What potential does this have to get me more followers how can this help me gain the attention of brands or corporate cultural publications? This pattern warps our ability and collective power to change the devastating social and psychological effects of perceiving our value solely from the mirror corporations hold up for us. Solely from the mirror corporations hold up for us. How do we remind ourselves that we deserve to, to archive, to document, and to share the nuances of our lives without the suffocation of profit incentives? I don't know if you see this in your school because you teach at a middle school, Mm -hmm. but my freshmen this last year were regularly talking about the amount of followers they have on Instagram and whatever else that is that they use these days. Mm -hmm. Dismissively and insultingly, they've said, quote, whatever. That's why you only have 300 followers. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going like, okay, how active are these followers? How engaged are these followers? And I think we could probably pare that down to, oh, this person said they'd follow me and they'd never pay attention. Mm. But let's say that's even 10% of that. You have 30 people who dig shit that you dig. I mean, yeah. you and I both play D&D. How easy is it to get a group of five together? You know, yeah. um, if I get 30 people come to a show, if I pull 30 people to a show, I'm pretty happy because I know other people will have pulled more people to that show too. Yeah. 300? 
I'd fucking love a room full of 300 people who love my shit. Yeah. And they're, you know, well, it's only 300. Regularly, they're having these conversations, by the way, and they'll praise people who have five digits worth of followers. Like I heard this quote once. Yeah, but she's got like 25,000 followers, so she's all right. The wizard fucking called it. Their value is pinned to the amount of people who like who notice them and give them hearts. Wow. Okay, sorry. The only knowsness of give them hearts is really quite a thing. Oh yeah, yeah. When we saw that together, my girlfriend and I were just like, Ooh. and Ooh. and I even told her I was like, I I have to do a podcast on this. She's like, yeah. I <laughs> So local Sacramento comedian, Keith Lowell Jensen, uh, and local Sacramento author, Keith Lowell Jensen, Jensen. said, quote, what Orwell failed to predict is that we'd buy the cameras ourselves and that our biggest fear would be that nobody was watching. Very, very profound. Yeah. A wise man. Yep. Wise man. And immediately after receiving his heart, the Tin Woodsman notices that it's ticking. So it's counting up its likes. As if to reinforce the (laughs) extrinsic nature of the symbol of the badge, the Cowardly Lion requires everyone to look at what his medal says, too. Look. Mm -hmm. Courage. Ain't it the truth? I have the thing. I don't have to have the thing inside. I have the thing that shows I have the thing. And perhaps most prophetically, Dorothy, the teenage girl, after seeing the commodification of education, the shoving down our throats of the thin blue line and the insidious nature of social media, she says, oh, I don't think there's anything in that black bag for me. Well, women make 72 cents on the dollar compared to men. Female police officers (laughs) comprise only 12% of the national total and social media's impact is measurably earlier in girls than it is in boys. 11 to 13 for girls and 14 to 15 for boys. It's yeah. a good movie. <laughs> that I'm never going to be able to watch the same way again. <laughs> uh, just knowing what Judy Garland went through filming it, I'm, I'm uh-huh. like, never again, Masada. I, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> like, no. Yep. Like, holy crap. Um, yeah. Wow. So here's, so, okay, here's a question. Sure. On a strictly, I don't know if I want to say spiritual level, but on a a strictly satirical level, Mm -hmm. do you think that the, uh, the, the gifts that the wizard gives to, to the, the protagonists Mm -hmm. in 1939, thinking about, you know, the, the framing of how that would have worked Mm -hmm. for people at the time. Do you think that could have been a satirical statement about external, you know, showing kind of kind of like hypocrisy, you know, the 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 outward symbol being more important than the than the inner Mm -hmm. quality? I think in many ways, the wizard critique, maybe because the wizard himself was a charlatan and an admitted Mm -hmm. one. But a charlatan can very often show us the truth about ourselves that we've forgotten. And in many ways, he's he's basically taking them through the Iliad, the Odyssey and the Aeneid. You know, he's he's showing them uh, the the courage. He's showing them the brains and he's showing them the heart. 
Mm-hmm. And isn't that Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas? Mm-hmm. And in many ways, isn't that just kind of an archetypical heart, body, and mind? Or yeah. heart, you know? You Power know what I mean? Trio. Yeah, the, the heart and the soul and the mind. Yeah. I mean, so... Id, ego, super ego. Yeah, I mean, it could be as simple as that. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you've got your brains, you've got your heart, and then you've got your your will to do good things for people, no matter yeah. the consequence, right? That courage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your virtue, moral courage. Virtue. Yeah. You know, and so I think those things are those three things are, are pretty constant things anyway. So, okay. but he is a charlatan and he the only person he does actually give something materially valuable to is Dorothy. Um, mm-hmm. He gives mm-hmm. her a ride back home, but it just her dog fucks it up. So then yeah. Glinda shows up and she's like, oh, by the way, you had the secret this whole goddamn time. <laughs> there's no place like home right there's no place like home yeah um, oh yeah no you yeah. you could have gone home at any time you wanted to but i needed you to you know take you carry out the, carry carry out the hit on yeah. my cousin like, finish you know. the genocide because yeah. we killed your her sister when you showed when you showed up <laughs> yeah you know um so oh yeah my I, god glinda is the cia <laughs> oh so that would make her alan foster dulles yeah or Alan Dulles and and yeah. the wizard is Dean Foster Dulles. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> but yeah, I think um no, I don't think that works because CIA didn't come about until later. Yeah. Uh, yeah I know, but, but I don't think it was satirical so much as it was these are props that are easy to see. This is a very okay. quick and tidy way to tidy it up. The, and it is still loyal. You've you've read the books, it is still yeah. loyal to the book. Oh, yeah. No, it's thematically they it get those things, in. right? Yeah. And and in 1900, um, you know, a college diploma was a known thing. It was almost talismanic. Oh, um, yeah. You well, know, it made and, you it made you, you know, a member of an intellectual elite. Exactly. If you had a bachelor's degree. Good God. And L. Frank Baum is married to yeah. Maud Gage. And yeah. Maud had gone to college. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he's still pulling from the soup, right? So the movie yeah. is because it is tied to the book. Yeah. I think it does have to do those things. So I don't think that it's purposeful satire. Okay. Um, and I, I don't, and again, look at, at the shitty, shitty people, the directors were, um, yeah, I don't, well, I don't you know, see the directors, the directors good. is one thing. Screenwriters might be another was, Could be. I was thinking, but yeah. yeah, but yeah, but then they're sticking to the source material yeah. in, in such true. a faithful way. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wish, but no, the, the no. movie is far too okay. abusive for it to have actually did that on purpose. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, what, what have you gleaned? Oh my God. Um, this is one more, this is, this is one more uh, uh, um, aggregate example because it's because multiple examples, but they're all tied up with a nice shitty bow. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's one big aggregate turd of an example of of just how bad the studio system was yeah yeah that's um, true you know like yeah i mean i i remember hearing stories about you know during during the silent movie era you know early black and white films of of you know people having having retinal burns from being on on set yeah light and yeah and just the conditions sucking nuts well, i think it was um lillian gish yeah 
um, she suffered from frostbite damage on her hand because she had her hand in freezing water for the entirety of a day. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. shitty, awful Mm -hmm. kind of inhumane conditions. And again, Cecil B. DeMille called. He wants to know why, (laughs) why you weren't killing any extras. (laughs) No. Um, What if he's just like sacrificing people to an elder God of, of entertainment or something uh, like, yeah, you know, a, a, uh, my, my best friend in college uh, came up with a, with a fifth chaos God for Warhammer 40 K called Warner. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he came up with because this is back when, when 40 K was kind of the wild west, you could create your own units and stuff. But like he created a, a demon unit that was essentially the Tasmanian devil that, mm. that you know, whirled mm-hmm, around randomly mm-hmm. around the board like it would spin. Yeah. Chaos God was Warner. Nice. And, and like, you know, talking about the studio system of like, you know, maybe he actually was onto something. <laughs> like, oh my God. That is awesome. Um, just, just the, the, the shit that, that they did to people and, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, we, we recoil now Mm -hmm. at the stories of, you know, the things that came out during the Me Too movement. Yep. But the thing is like, well, of course that shit was happening because this is the system that, that is the descendant of the studio system, which was so much worse. Yeah. Like, like. I mean, I, I, and and I don't say that to minimize the shit that women have had to put up with in modern Hollywood, Mm -hmm. but rather to just try to, you know, to, to say just how literally lethally bad the studio system was. Yeah. And then the studio system gave way to auteurs Mm -hmm. who were pricks in a completely different way. Yeah. You know, and, and just, (laughs) Like, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the actress who played the, the Wicked Witch of the, of the West saying, well, you know, I could have sued, but I would have never worked in Hollywood again. It just reminds me of and I'm the a single old mom. joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, but it reminds me of the joke about, you know, a pair of, uh, uh, stable hands, you know, shoveling out the, the elephant enclosure in the circus. And one of them says, man, why do we keep putting up with this shit? Well, like if we leave, we'd give up show business. <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. I don't, I don't think you understand yeah. the scale of what's going on here. But yeah, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to watch The Wizard of Oz the same way again. Oh, I'm sorry, because your kid's just about the right age to. Enjoy yeah, well, it yeah, too. he is, and and the thing is, I mean. I will be able to sit with him and watch it, but the whole time I'm going to be looking at Judy Garland going, girl, run. Right. Just like, right. Oh my God, get the fuck out of there. Yeah. You know, and I mean, all of those, all of those stories are, are old enough that like individually, mm-hmm. like you kind of know them. Like I, I remember, I don't remember the stuff about the, about the scarecrow, but I do remember, you know, about, you know, Buddy Ebsen, have right. suffering permanent lung scarring. I remember that. I remember, um, you know, about about Judy Garland having a very hard time. The details are worse than I had recalled. Yes, you know, but 
you know, and, and there were there were all of these horror stories associated with it, but like most of the time you hear about the horror stories separately from each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then not being as confronted an with <laughs> all of them together. It's like they're happening at the same time. Holy shit. Yeah. Man. You know, um just yeah. And and um the 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 last thing, the last thing is the 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 issue with the lighting mm-hmm. having to be so intense because of the technology for technicolor mm-hmm. is an interesting note to me about the way technology advances in a particular way and creates a whole new set of complications and problems yes and the way that any given technology develops from there is partly going to be determined by the people who have the power to decide what the priorities are in dealing with those problems. Yeah. So like, well, okay. The actor playing this part is wearing literally two light suits stitched together. <laughs> like, right. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is, as its own squick factor just to begin with, but like, you know, we, we've got them in a pair of lion hides that we've stitched up. Right. You know, so we're, we're going to try to dim the lights when we can, but like, no, for, for the color process to work, we just, it's going to have to be 106 on the set all the time. Like that's, we can't, we can't make it any lower than that. Right. And, it's and like, that well, was don't the do selling that. point. That was, that was the selling point of the movie. It really was. Was, and, you know, the, the shift between, you know, Kansas is all in black and white, and then we mm-hmm. get the Oz, and oh my God. And you I know. think that's what bothers me the most about it, is that, like, you always have this, well, it's for the art. Yeah. And we can all share in the art. And it's like, yeah, but it's art built on that much fucking suffering. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I did it with the Ace of Base episode too, you know, like it's there, there is, there is an unwillingness or there's a willingness to sacrifice people's health and comfort uh, and safety and well-being for the sake of art. And I think that that is a problem and it's, and that opens up everyone involved to abuse. Oh, yeah, well, a much more benign version of that is proven. Is, yeah, a much more benign version of that is when you don't pay comics and you just tell them, "Oh, it's good exposure," or you don't pay writers and you tell them it's exposure. You, yeah, you wouldn't, any any creative when you say, "Well, you know, mm-hmm. this will this will provide you with an audience." No, fuck you, pay me. Right. Like, no, right. no, I'm putting in time and effort and work. I deserve to be exactly for that. You know, um, and the the well in that in that vein one of the things that i've always taught or mm-hmm. always brought up in my world history class my seventh grade world history classes uh when we get to japan um we talk about the heian period mm-hmm. and one of the things that makes the heian period notable was that an african-american leader named andre 3000 was actually the shogun no 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 because he got that's, them to all chant hey on yeah well hey, no that's hey, that's hey, that's actually the uh 
oh damn it i, I was trying to i was trying to come up with a with oh he another, was an outcast ruler I yeah he was yeah, yeah it was he You're got right. he got he got exiled yeah um yeah so but what actually did historically happen was uh the the noble classes of japan had uh become almost entirely separated from the commoners who were doing all of the farming and all of the the day-to-day work right and they had all of this power because they were landlords and they owned all the property and the thing is the heian era heian period is this incredible literary and artistic and religious there's this explosion of of art and like the development of no uh, uh drama yeah the 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 art that they did yeah yeah no theater. is yeah is is absolutely amazing and the question that you put to the kids is okay so the reason this art was kind of possible was because we had an entire class of people who literally did not have to work mm-hmm. a day in their lives mm-hmm. and the question is is that worth it you know right right and and you know the 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 this wasn't a case of like active abuse by those hayon nobles of the people who were doing the working for that art to happen mm-hmm. and the art itself didn't involve you know blood sacrifice high cecil b de mill you know but there was still this concentration of wealth and one group of people who were stuck doing all of the work and another group of people who were liberated by that to create all of this literature and poetry and everything else. Mm-hmm. And like how, you know, for each student, it's going to be a different answer. How do you reconcile that? Right. Like, you know, what, what do we do? Yeah. Well, I, I used to talk about this in my econ class uh, of just like, you know, I, I beg the question by assuming that capitalism is the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I have them, you know, kind of work themselves into, well, no, if, if you can lower costs and blah, blah, blah. And that's the most important thing. Cause then customers and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and they, they work themselves, they paint themselves into the corner. I said, great. You've just made an argument for why slavery is acceptable. Yep. And there's the kids who double down because they know that they're not actually making policy that involves creating slaves, mm-hmm. um, and enslaving people. Um, and the kids that double down because they also know that uh, they've been tricked and they don't want to admit it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's the kids who have a conscience uh, and they're yeah. just like, what the, oh, I was like, yep, you got done dirty. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, I always, I'm always looking at like, okay, to make this. And I go the other way around too. Uh, we watched, we finished watching Miss Marvel, which by the way is phenomenal. And I know I just dated okay. the show. Um, but uh, we finished watching it. And what I showed the kids was we sat through all the credits and I said, do you realize how many screens of credits we've seen? No, not really. How many? I'm like, I don't know. Dozens, dozens. And on each screen, there's easily 30 or 40 names. I said, think of how many people had a job because somebody created the character of Kamala Khan and it has taken off now. Yep. Think of how many jobs that that created, how many, uh, how many, uh you know um christmases that is that's taken care of now i said that's what's amazing about creativity is that is that you can do that so it's it's you know the other side of that but 
now we have far less abusive systems. I say yeah. that knowing full well that I was watching it on the Disney Plus app. Um, yeah. And that who knows in 20 years, we'll, we'll, we'll find out that uh, in fact, there was all kinds of horrible stuff. Like, I mean, Rampant, we know, we know the abuses shit that, happening. Yeah. yeah. We know the abuses that Chris Evans had to go through and put himself through. Yeah. Um, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a good movie though. Huh? So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Classic. Yeah, it is family, classic. family, classic family viewing. Uh-huh. Built on. <laughs> so much abuse <laughs> so, on so much shitty stuff which which is awful when you think about you know who it was again who wrote the book right like one of the yeah. sunniest individuals in american literary yes. history like yes i'm gonna write a book so good for children that we're gonna abuse a child to in an order early to turn grave it into a movie to make it a movie that's so good for children uh yeah. Well, what you reading? Um, I'm reading the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, cool! You're which I think I've, I've I've mentioned on a, on a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm continuing to read them because uh, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot there, um, and it's really remarkable how he wrote them um, while dying from throat cancer, mm-hmm. uh, because. To to read at least where I am in the book right now to read his prose you wouldn't you wouldn't think there was anything going on it is he he is a remarkably good writer or he was a mm-hmm. remarkably good writer for somebody who historically has a reputation as being you know kind of a middling intellect and you know a, a plotter right is a term that's been used um, his his voice is vital and direct and um yeah i i my admiration for him as a figure in american history only continues to to grow as as i read his accounts of these things and it's not because he's painting himself as this great hero mm-hmm. It's because one of the things that that I find admirable is the amount of work he goes to to give credit to all of the other officers, whether his superiors or his subordinates, mm-hmm. uh, that that he worked with and who who were part of all of these exploits. Um, he is at pains to point out where other people did good. Um, and he does not arrogate um, glory to himself. He's he's not writing this as a way to burnish his reputation. He's writing it as a way to tell the story mm-hmm. and hopefully bring in the money to support his family after he dies. You know, um, right? But but it's not like if McClellan were to write something like this, it would be recrimination on all the people who caused his downfall <laughs> and it would be you know i was right and you know i i saved the lives of thousands of union soldiers never mind the fact that you could have ended the fucking war in nine months you chicken shit bastard you know i mean it just it would it would have been a completely different book if it had been mcclellan talking about his experiences just because they're personalities and and so i'm very uh, again, I just I continue to admire uh, U.S. Grant the more I read of his of his work. So, how about you? 
now that I've opined about civil war generals. Oh, Lordy. Um, you know, I've, I've depressed people enough, I think with, uh, the, the, the things that we covered today as <laughs> well as horror the show that was the 1939. Movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, there's a lot of really wonderful, uh, histories of the studio system. Um, and many of them are actually written by historians, uh, which, which is nice, but I'm not going to direct anybody to them. Um, I think actually what I'm going to say is, uh, go and, watch um the the wizard of oz like check it out actually watch it uh and see what pokes through in terms of what we've covered here mm-hmm. uh to, today especially yeah um but uh yeah and and then of course recognize what it was built upon but mm-hmm. i say go watch that um and uh, listen to her singing her voice is wonderful and it's mm-hmm. It's remarkably deep for someone so little yeah um you know and and like i said she had a four octave range uh yeah. which is insane um so yeah i would say i would say go watch that okay so, yeah Very well cool. cool uh where can people find you on social media on social media i can be found at mr underscore blaylock on the tiki talks i can be found at eh blaylock on twitter um off the top of my head, I believe I'm E.H. Blaylock on uh, Instagram as well. And uh, we can be found at Geek History of Time on uh, Twitter and at uh, geekhistoryoftime.com on the internet. Obviously, if you're listening to us right here, you've already found the podcast. Um, and we're on uh, Spotify, not Spotify, sorry, uh, Stitcher. Stitcher and the iPod app uh, for uh, Apple and Android. Uh, I, I think we're in the Android store too. Okay. Not sure. Should Somebody be. let us know. Okay. Um, and so that's where you can find us collectively. Mm-hmm. If they, if, if you need to correct something, uh, you know, let us know through one of those uh, channels. And uh, if since you're listening, please take a moment to go into whatever app you're using for podcasts, subscribe, give us the five stars that you know Damien has earned with the research he did uh, for this and the emotional damage he inflicted on himself by, <laughs> you know, learning all of these dark truths. Um, and yeah, where can you be found individually, sir? Uh, you know, the best place to find me is on September 9th. This should probably release right around the week before that or perhaps today uh september 9th i will be at luna's uh slinging puns uh with my crew capital punishment uh starring the all new member uh justine lopez uh she is joining us daniel humbarger has moved on to great things uh and we wish him well out in hawaii um so justine lopez has stepped in and she is going to bring a whole new uh game to it so please come out and check us out uh, capital punishment bring proof of vaccination i recommend a mask um but bring 10 bucks uh and uh, get some food and have a really wonderful time uh catching our puns so that's where i'm going to tell people to go for today all right sounds good cool well for a geek history of time i'm damien harmony and i'm ed blaylock and until next time keep rolling 20s <laughs>